This morning, we are listening for God's address in Genesis chapter 26. If you have a Bible, I, and I hope that you do have your Bible or have a Bible and you've brought it with you. If you do, turn there, Genesis 26. If you're new to the Bible, I know it can be quite intimidating and uh, especially intimidating to bring it to a place like this where you would feel like you stand out if you can't find a passage of Scripture. But that's all right. The Bible is a big and complex book, um, even for people who've been around it for many, many years. So if you're getting used to the Bible, your best friend will be the table of contents. Uh, Fortunately, this morning, you don't even need that. Genesis, it's the first book, the first book of the Bible. Right at the beginning, um, find the 26th chapter. Genesis 26. It's an interesting chapter. It's the only chapter in the Bible where Isaac, the son of Abraham, is the primary character. It's an interesting thing. The whole story of the Bible builds up to the child of the promise. Abraham is the great hinge that the whole Bible turns around. And the drama of his life plays out over the barrenness that he and his wife are going through. Over God's promise to overcome that barrenness. The long, long awaited child is Isaac. Isaac gets here, one chapter. It's a strange thing. We'll come back to why Isaac only gets one chapter next week. We get a little bit of Isaac in chapter 21 and a little bit in chapter 22 and a little bit in chapter 24. Um, but in all those, char- those chapters, he's a minor character. He's flat in terms of literature. There's no de- development in him. He's passive. He receives the action. At the end of chapter 25, he shows up and he is active, but only just for a moment. And he's quickly eclipsed. And we'll see next week in chapter 27 that he's there. But in chapter 27, he's a joke. He's a subject of buffoonery. He's not the primary protagonist. It's only here in Genesis 26 that the, that the, that the story focuses on Isaac as a primary character... And he's active. Now, when we look at this chapter, those of you who like to take notes, those of you for whom my sermons frustrate when I don't give you this clear outline, for you this morning there will be three points. Three lessons from the life of Isaac. Three lessons. Number one, children share in the relationship to God that their parents have. Now, if that offends your Protestant sensibilities, um, it's here. It's in this passage. It's, it dominates this passage. Now, to see it, you need to recognize that we're reading really old literature. This is approximately 3,500 years old, this passage we're reading. Written Three and a half millennia ago. And so when you're reading literature from another time and another culture, just like in our 
time and culture, it helps to kind of know the rules of the genre. How does this literature work? So when you're reading the newspaper and it says the sun will rise at X time, you know the rules of the genre. You don't feel like the newspaper's lying to you. You don't feel like the newspaper authors are idiots. You know that this is, this is a way you speak in newspapers. We know that the sun doesn't rise All of that kind of stuff. You know, if somebody says to you, three guys walked into a bar, a Catholic, a Jew, and a Baptist, you know right away you're dealing with a joke, right? And then you know the rules that follow. If somebody says to you, once upon a time, if you're reading a book and it says that, you know the rules to how to read that book. Now, this is ancient Near Eastern literature. And when you read it, it helps to know the rules. And one of the things that it's helpful to know anytime you're reading the stories in the Old Testament, especially the stories in the first five books of the Old Testament, one of the things it's helpful to know is this. Very rarely does the author tell you what to think. Very rarely does the narrator explicitly make his point. Instead, in Old Testament stories, the author uses indirection. He uses literary techniques to get his point across. And a primary literary technique in the ancient Near Eastern genre literature we're dealing with here, a primary way the author communicates his message in the first five books of the Bible is this, through comparison. Comparing a character, forcing you to compare a character to another character or a set of events to other events or a moment in the story to another. Three primary ways. And this comes up throughout the stories of the Old Testament. So for example... When you're reading a story like this and you start remembering another character, there's like allusions or hints or echoes. Or if the author just flat out names another character, you need to know that you have work to do. See, the author of the stories of the Old Testament doesn't give it to you on a silver platter. He wants you, to, the reader, to work. So, you'll notice the very first sentence of this chapter mentions Abraham. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now to the attentive reader, you're downloading into your mind, oh, I remember that, Genesis chapter 12, where God allowed his chosen person, Abraham, to go through a famine. But the author here doesn't only mention Abraham... He mentions that Abraham and Isaac are going through a similar event. So not only are you supposed to compare these two characters, but the author wants you to compare their two experiences of a common event. But there's more than that. In verses 2 through 5, God calls Isaac. He calls him and he gives him a command regarding where he is to live. Those of you who know the story. What is the first thing God does with Abraham? He calls him and he commands him where to live. And then in chapter 26, verses 3 to 5, God promises Isaac tremendous blessings if he will obey him in where he lives, just like God did with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And then, lo and behold, Isaac travels to Gerar in verse 6, just like his dad did during the famine in chapter 12. Abraham traveled to Gerar. And then, just like his father, 
Isaac lies about his wife and says of her exactly what Abraham said of Sarah in a famine when he fled to Gerar. She's my sister for the same reason. He's a scaredy pants. And then, just like with Abraham, there's a whole series of quarrels regarding wells, which makes sense. A well, water, this is some pretty serious stuff. People fight over this stuff. California, and a whole bunch of trouble over this stuff. And in a time of famine, it's even more serious. And then God reveals himself to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verses 23 to 25. He reassures Isaac of his presence and his protection. And in response, what does Isaac do? He builds an altar and worships God. All of this in the same place, in the same way that Abraham. God revealed himself to Abraham in the same place, promises protection and blessing, and Abraham responds in the same way, building an altar and worshiping God. And then after that, same thing with Isaac as with Abraham. The king of the Philistines shows up and begs him, be at peace, let's have a non-aggression treaty. And again... Isaac does it just like his father. So when you read this chapter and you've been reading the book with your eyes attuned, not to little moral nuggets of truth, but to the texture of the literature, you compare Isaac to Abraham because the author is telling you to. And what do you get out of this comparison? Well, you see Isaac walking very much In his father's footsteps. And the key point is this. Isaac fully inherits the blessings of his father. Because he's Abraham's child. It's all over the chapter. But look closely at verse 24. Here's God speaking to Abraham. I mean to Isaac. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I'm with you too. Isaac inherited his father's relationship to God. The special relationship that Abraham had with God will now be experienced by the son. So here we have the first lesson for us from the life of Isaac. Children share in the same relationship to God that their parents do. And it's not just here. It's throughout the Old Testament. In fact, one of the most important lessons God taught Abraham was our relationship is ritualized and signified in circumcision. And I command you to give that gift to your son. And so, on the eighth day, Isaac was circumcised and in that moment brought into the covenant that Abraham had with God. And it goes on through the whole Old Testament. It's one of the, listen, this is one of the most important aspects of how God works in the world. Remember, the the story of the Bible is the story of God dealing with evil. And it all hinges around God and Abraham. And one of the key issues with Abraham is this gets passed on to your kids through the ritual of circumcision. Sheer grace. They don't have to earn it. 
They can't earn it. You can't earn it. This is one of the most important aspects of the way God is dealing with the brokenness of the world. Children share in the covenant relationship with God of the parents. It's at the heart of what God taught Abraham. And it's not only in the Old Testament. Keep your finger there, Genesis chapter 26, and turn all the way to the New Testament. And let's look at the very first Christian sermon. So when the work of God climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ, and then the early church is trying to figure out, okay, how does what God has done in Jesus line up with what God was already doing all along? And how do we live in faithfulness, not to a brand new God, but to a God who's revealed himself to us in a unique and climactic way? And when the first sermon interpreting that event occurs, a group of people cry out, we want in on that. If God is healing the problem of evil in the world, we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of God's kingdom. We want to be a part of God's covenant family. And what is the answer to the people who say, how can we get in on this good work of God in our world? Acts chapter 2 verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Bam, right there. Peter, who has been raised, immersed in the Old Testament, says the way in is what it's always been. Repentance and baptism. Baptism has become the new form of circumcision. The ritualized moment in which a person is given the covenant. Children share in the same relationship to God that their parents have. So parents, we must parent out of faith, not fear. We must train our children to understand what God has done for them in making them a part of his covenant and kingdom, just like Isaac, even from their infancy. We must train our children in such a way that their whole lives will be one grand amen to their baptism. You see, with the arrival of Christ, circumcision has been transformed into baptism. And the importance of baptism to your identity is the same as the importance of circumcision to Isaac's identity. And your identity, your assurance of salvation can never get beyond your baptism. In baptism, God graciously unites us to his son. And like Peter said in Acts chapter 2, pours out his spirit upon us, forgives us of our sins. He weds us to Christ and ordains us to the priesthood. Understanding infant baptism is critical to faithful Christian parenting. This is not to say that baptism um, in isolation, like some magic act, guarantees salvation. God never intended baptism to stand on its own. Rather, as we combine the waters of baptism with faithful obedience and life in the church, we find that God has already given us and our children every blessing in Christ. 
That's what Abraham discovered. He's walking through life. And he discovers even when he ruins it. Even when he flat out lies and is faithless to God. God's like, I made a promise to your daddy. And you get it too. Here's Abraham walking through life. A klutz. Getting richer by accident. Right? He lies about his wife and then what happens? He plants and gets a hundredfold increased. What is that? It's the blessing of the covenant. You can't read this chapter without being convinced Isaac is out blessed. He's not earning his blessing. And God says to him over and over, I, was, I told you, daddy, I would do this. When I brought him into the covenant, I told him it was for his children too. A famous theologian by the name of Karl Barth, he, he, he objected to infant baptism because he said it violently opposes a religious identity on the child without the child's consent. And he's absolutely right. Infant baptism imposes a religious identity on a child without the child's consent. Sort of like the child being born into your family. Got your last name. You didn't ask the child for it. Got your DNA. You didn't ask the child for it. He didn't ask you for it. And this is exactly what God commands us to do. He commands us to impose our religious identity on our children. In Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 1 to 25, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and in Proverbs 22, verse 6, and over and over and over. Now, Bart's wrong. It's not violent. In fact, it's gracious. What could be more gracious than enculturating our children into the life of the kingdom? Right? Is it violent of you to allow your kid into the blessing of all your hard work and labors? Are you violating them by not making your two-year-old pay rent? Besides that, a religious identity is going to be imposed upon your child. It's inescapable. The only question is, which identity will it be? Will it be a Christian identity, as the Bible requires? Or will it be some non-Christian identity? They will grow up with a religious identity. We've got to reject the ridiculous notion that our children are neutral in relation to God until they reach some mythical age of accountability. We've got to teach our children what God has done for them in Christ's death and resurrection and what he applies to them through the means of grace in the life of the church. Look, your children can love God before they can speak. I mean, why do, you, do mothers hold kids, babies close and talk to them? Do you think your kid has no idea what you're communicating? Do you really think you're just playing a game for your own psychological betterment? Hasn't psychology showed us what happens to children who are not affectionately loved before they ever gain cognitive abilities to express it? How much more can your child's maker Love your child and your child know and love the maker back. Do you think you've got more power in your infant's life than God does? Babies can have faith. If babies can't have faith, Baptists shouldn't talk to them. You're wasting your time. If babies can't have faith, then mothers shouldn't hold their kids in their arms because they're just playing games. No, that baby can love, can trust. So our job is not to convert our baptized children. Rather, our job is to teach them to persevere in the faith that they already have received in their baptism. 
We're not going to treat children as outsiders until they're old enough to make a profession of faith or wise enough to. If so, what are we going to do with William Veerman? William has Down syndrome. Do we have to wait? Do we have to wait on his healing to bring him to the grace of the table? Do his parents have to wait on his intellectual abilities before they can love him and know that he can receive love back? No. We're not going to wait on William and we're not going to wait on any other baby in this church. We're not going to treat them as pre-converts. That's not the way grace works. We don't treat them as outsiders until they're old enough to make a profession. We enfold them into the life of the body just like you enfold them into the life of your family. As soon as they can chew, we give them bread. It's totally incongruent to baptize a child on the basis of God's covenant promise and then doubt the reality of that promise until the child is old enough to accept it. This practice undercuts everything. Circumcision in the Old Testament, infant baptism in the New Testament, it undercuts it all. It's an insult to our Heavenly Father who wants our children to know that He loves them and it turns, it turns the means of grace into a means of doubt and confusion. A baptized person is a Christian until and unless they apostatize. We treat our baptized children as the Christians that they are, as elect and forgiven and filled with God's Spirit. Children at incarnation. When we tell you that God is your Father, we're not joking. We're not lying and we're not making a promise. We're making a fact, a statement. God is the father of June and Ben. They were baptized into the covenant family and when they were, he adopted them as his own. And they are safe and secure in the arms of the father. Children, when we tell you that Jesus died for your sins, we are telling you something that actually happened and it is true and we want you to know it and we want you to embrace it and to feel it. You are a child of God. That is your identity. You're more a child of God than you are of your parents. Water is stronger than blood in the kingdom. Yes, it's true that baptized children can renounce their father and become prodigals. Kids, you can walk away with God from God. Just like God told Isaac, hey, your father walked with me. He obeyed me. Now you've got to do the same. This doesn't let you off the hook. It's not a magic thing. In fact, that's the second lesson from Isaac's life. Look at verse 2, Genesis 26, verse 2. Our relationship to God is the source of our growth in faith. The covenant blessings are the source of Isaac's growth, not the reward for it. Genesis chapter 26 verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell tell you. So sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you for you and your offspring. I will give these lands and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. Look at the end of verse 4. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my law. Now look, it's not that Abraham obeyed God and therefore God made him in the covenant. No, remember how the whole story starts. Genesis 12, Abraham was a pagan in a pagan land and God said, follow me. And Abraham did follow him. 
And out of that, we saw in the summer and the fall of this past year, we saw that Abraham's obedience to God was a long struggle. Do you remember all of his mess-ups? Do you remember all of his failures? Isn't it amazing that looking back on his life, God says he obeyed me? He's not ta- Look, that's a big view of it. But when you zoom in on the details of it, that obedience was a hard-fought, maturing battle. You see, God is faithful to deliver on the promises of baptism. Just like Isaac, children, God has saved you. Now live up to it. That's the story of Abraham. God saved him and then said, now live up to it. And now here's God in Isaac's life saying, look, you've been given the promises too. Now you too have to live up to it. You too have to be loyal to God. God has united you to Christ. Now be who you are. You share in the same relationship to God, children, Robert, that your mom and dad have. Now live up to it. You participate in the same covenant blessings. And listen, you also face the same danger. You can fall away. You can. You stand in the same need of perseverance. As it was with Isaac, so it is with us. The covenant promises do not mean that we can expect our children to someday have a conversion experience. They already have been converted. Isaac's blessings were a result of Abraham's faith. You cannot get away from that in this chapter. Now, just like it says in Acts 2.39, the promise to believing parents is that their children are saved. And that by means of diligent and faithful parental nurture and discipline, the promise is your children will persevere. So the heart of parenting is this. Our job as Christian parents is to form in our children a covenantal identity. A sense of belonging to God in the church. Our children need us to teach them who they are in Christ so they can live up into that. May God by his grace help us. But that's not the end of it. Isaac clearly inherits God's blessings from his father, but he still has to learn to walk in them. That's what's going on in this chapter. God is telling Isaac, in my grace, I brought you into the covenant I made with you with your father. Now live up to it. Don't you parents do the same thing with your kids? I brought you into this world. You're spears. You're going to act like it. Don't we do that? Don't we have all kind of ways of saying that to our kids? This is who you are by virtue of who you were born to and the life we've given you. Now live like it. That's exactly what God is doing in Genesis 26 with Abraham, with Isaac. I extended the covenant that I made with your father into your life. Now live up to it. Be faithful. Be loyal. Love me. Obey me. Trust me. In famine and in plenty, you're in the covenant. Now be careful. Like your father, allow my blessings, my grace, my mercy, my kindness to be the source of your transformation into a great man. Didn't we see in the fall that God's grace in Abraham's life made him great? It turned him from a selfish jerk into a mighty husband and father. 
It turned him from someone who was willing to pimp out his wife to protect his own life into a man of deep courage and humility by the end. And this happened to Isaac too. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you. Look at verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. He obeyed God. Could you obey God in the face of a famine? A famine when there, where there is no food line? Where there is no Costco? Do you, do you know how deadly this situation is? Do you know what famine means? David Cooper does, his years in the Peace Corps. Do you know what famine means in this society? And Isaac, standing up on the lessons he learned from his mom and dad, standing up in all that grace and mercy and faithfulness of God in his life, stood up in the face of that famine and obeyed God. Zeke, would you endanger your children's life in the face of a famine based on something you thought God told you? This is serious stuff. And he does. Egypt, this is the source of food. It's the bread basket. It takes faith to stay in Gerar. And not only that, remember Isaac last week? 20 years of barrenness. And he prays. Even better than his dad, right? When his dad faced barrenness, after a while, what did he do? He took matters into his own hands. And he went and visited Hagar, the servant he picked up while he went to Egypt. Only Isaac endured barrenness of all the patriarchs. All the other patriarchs resorted to concubinage. But Isaac, faith in, could you, can you have faith over two years, two decades of barrenness? You know, I, you and I both know of people for whom that level of suffering utterly destroys their faith. There's Isaac though, praying. Not only was he a man of obedience and faith, he's a man of prayer. He knows how to pray. He knows how to pray for something for two decades without giving up or turning into some deist that says, well, it's up to God. Whatever he's going to do, he'll do. He prays. What a great man of faith. But like I said, at our baptism, God brings us into the covenant family. But and it's not a magic thing. When we receive God's grace, we have to embrace it. And Isaac did. God's grace doesn't let us off the hook. Grace is the opposite of earning. It is not the opposite of effort. This is what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 5. Make every effort to add to your faith virtue. This is what Paul said. I work with the energy that he so powerfully works within me. So God's grace is first. And then we, we, we use that grace to work hard for our own moral transformation. And then you read the last two verses. Of Genesis 26. Remember I told you the, uh, the authors of this literature. They were masters of indirection. They knew how to make a point. Without spoon feeding it to you. <laughs> Here is Isaac. Man you're just amazed by this guy. You're amazed by the blessing in his life. And by the faith and obedience and prayer he has. And then you read verse 34. When Esau... 
was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bere, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basemuth, the daughter of Ellen, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. What happened? I mean, you're supposed to compare Isaac to Abraham, aren't you? How old was Isaac when um, Abraham secured for him a wife? Forty. And, and Abraham, at enormous expense, said, Whatever you do, do not marry a woman in this pagan land. And, he, and, he, and Abraham, with tremendous foresight and deep belief in God, sent his servant, right, to a safe place to find a wife. What's Isaac been doing? Clearly, Isaac has not secured for his son a wife. And not only has he not done it, but his son has done the very thing that Abraham was absolutely committed that his son would not do. Marry a pagan woman from the local area. And not just marries one, marries two. And just in case you can't compare the last line, this, was a sort, this made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. See, when, when I got to the end of Genesis 26 and I realized that I need to figure out these last two verses, it suddenly dawned on me, it's like watching that movie The Sixth Sense. You get to the end and you learn a piece of information that changes the whole story. And then you go back and you look at it again and you see stuff you forgot to notice. But it was there all along. And what do you notice when you go back through Genesis 26? While Isaac grew in a lot of ways, there was one thing he did not deal with. Fear. The, the, the two dominant themes in Genesis 26, the first one is the blessing of God. It's all over the chapter. It's all over the place. It shows up in God's speech to Isaac. I will bless you. Think about the movement of the chapter. It's a movement from famine, verse 1, verse 33, water. Right? This is beautiful literature. This is movement from lack of water, lack of stability, to an abundance of water. This is blessing. By the end of the chapter, Isaac is living in a world that is teeming with the generously given gifts of God. The chapter moves from precarious existence to security and riches. And by the end of the chapter, Isaac is equal to a king. Blessing is the first of two dominant notes in the chapter. The second one, unfortunately, is fear. And while Isaac arrives to this moment in life, a man of great faith, a man who has learned from the grace of God, something else is at play in his life. And look, when we stitch all the little vignettes of Isaac's life up together, what we see is that Isaac peaked. And then slid into a catastrophe. Abraham grew to greatness at the end of his life. Isaac, in his retirement, became a tragedy. We'll see it next week. We'll see that grace does not let us off the hook. Isaac's decline started when his children were born. Something about the dysfunction of his children, like so many other people, drew Isaac in 
And he failed. And by the end of his life, he's not marked by obedience. In fact, he's marked by disobedience. And I'll show you next week how fear erodes his obedience. Instead, until he ends up not a man of obedience with some fear, but a man of fear who can no longer obey. The first half of your life does not guarantee the second half. The grace that has been given to you cannot be presumed upon. Isaac's decline centered around the issue of fear. For whatever reason, he failed to overcome fear. Notice three encounters between Isaac and the Philistines. The first encounter is verses 1 through 16. And notice verse 7. When the men of this place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared. The second encounter with the men of the Philistines, it's in verses 17 to 22. It's in the valley of Gerar, the wadi of Gerar. This is all that business about the wells. Right? He digs a well, discovers water, and then what happens? The Philistines do what? They fill it up. And so what does he do? Do you remember when Dan read it to us? What does he do? He moves on to another well. Then the Philistines come and fill it up. And then what does he do? Moves on to another well. Now the first time reading that, you think it's meekness. You think he's acting out of non-aggression. But when you compare it to the way Abraham handled when the Philistines took his well, which you're supposed to do, he's a coward. And don't mistake cowardliness for meekness. And the only way you know that is from the context. The only way you know that is if you're bopping back and forth and comparing him to Abraham. And you're seeing that when Abraham dealt with the same group of people taking his well, he stood up. And suddenly you get to the end of his chapter and you discover that his son is incredibly corrupt. And you're trying to figure out how can such a great man, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to say, wait, I thought this was a great man. I thought he was capable of passing on the faith to his child, the faith he has. And you're supposed to ask, why couldn't he pass on the faith? And then you go back and you reread and you begin to notice fear, fear, fear keeps playing away, playing away. And we discover next week he refuses to confront his children. Then you get to chapter, you get to verses 23 to 33. The third time Isaac encounters the Philistines. This is when Abimelech, verse 26, goes out to him and says, Why, why, and Isaac says, Why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and sent me away? That's not a statement of courage. That's petulance. Why, Why are you coming to me? I thought you didn't like me. They said, we plainly see that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you so that you will do us no harm just as we have touched you and have done to you nothing but good. That's a lie. That's not true. And how does Isaac respond to that lie? He makes a feast for them. Interesting, when this same king and this same military commander came to Abraham, you know what Abraham did? He confronted the king on stealing the well. You're supposed to compare the two. When Abraham confronts a powerful king over an act of injustice, what does Isaac do? 
First he acts with, you know, like poutiness. I thought you didn't like me. And then what does he do? Silence. Then he gives them a a, a feast. I'm not saying that he should have fought with them. I'm saying that once you begin to notice fear, you read back through and you see the moment you thought he was meek, he might have been timid, but then you discover it's a timidity based on fear. Remember, A way the author of Genesis communicates his message is by inviting you to draw comparisons. So at this point, you should say, well, how does fear play out in other parts of this book? And when you begin to pay attention to the role of fear in the book of Genesis, you see that it is a cardinal weakness. On the one hand, Genesis endorses strength and courage without glorifying violence. And on the other hand, it condemns fear. In fact, there are only two circumstances where Genesis approves of fear. One is the fear of God's presence. And the other is the fear of God's punishment for sin. It's funny, Abimelech fears God's punishment. Oh, you you tricked us into... Maybe sleeping with your wife and God would destroy us if we did that. So Abimelech says to his whole country, if any man touches her, he'll die. See, Abimelech was saying, I live in fear of this man's God. See, only fear ever approved of in the book of Genesis. Every time any other fear shows up, it's bad. It's fear for his life that leads Abraham to pimp out his wife. It's fear for his own life that leads Isaac to pimp out his wife. It's fear for his life that prompts Lot to offer his daughters to the men of Sodom to to rape. And later on, it's fear for his life that drives him to live in a cave in Zoar. And if you're not familiar with that story, it is terrible what happens in that cave. Jacob's fear about the possibility of harm befalling Benjamin delayed his own reconciliation with Joseph. And Judah's fear for Shelah led to the really bad behavior around Tamar. We could go, you, you trace it out in Genesis and fear is an enormously bad issue. Apparently Isaac's fear turns him into a passive father who fails to pass on the faith to Esau. And we'll see next week. It erodes his greatest virtue. The one who could once obey God next week flat out defiantly disobeys God because of his fear. You see, the thing that early in life you can control and keep hidden, ask King David what happens to that later in life. Parents, You have to teach your children to overcome fear. You have to do it in a thousand uncanny ways. You have to teach them to look adults in the eye. When an adult says, what's your name? You nip that fear in the bud. Don't let your kid hide behind your leg. What you're playing with is dynamite. You graciously teach your child when an adult asks you a question and you're scared. You look at them and you answer. Not only... Is it good manners? You're fighting fear 
Because you see, it's fear early in life that if left unchecked will destroy you. Fear. How many of you have already been asked, like me, out of the blue, what's your thoughts on the Supreme Court decision? I'm sitting at a restaurant, an acquaintance downtown. I don't know where he stands at all on this issue. Finds me in the corner. I'm trying to hide and study and ask me. And in that moment, I think, who am I answering? Which side of this am am I going to face? I'm not saying we have to be jerks. I am saying Revelation 21.8 says cowards go to hell. Cowards go to hell. That's how serious this is in the Bible. The last book says, if you don't learn to deal with your fear, your soul is in danger. And so you read back through the story of Isaac's life. And all of the goodness, all of the grace that he inherited. As Abraham grew older, he grew more virtuous. What trajectory are you on? 50-year-olds? Do you love God more than the 20-year-olds? Are you more holy than you were at 20? Are you more passionate for God and the things of God and the kingdom of God? Is your character stronger? Do you gossip less or just more sophisticatedly? What have you done with the grace of God in your life? Are Are you allowing it to transform you into greatness like Abraham did? Or have you been tolerating a secret weakness? And have you assumed that because you've made it this far safe, that that weakness will not bloom into full-fledged cancer? Have you hidden your pornography and thought that because of that, because of your success, because you're still faithful to your wife, because you're still honorable in public, have you thought that you are okay? Do you think Isaac would rise up right now and beg you, whatever you do, do not assume that the victory of the first half of life guarantees a triumphant retirement? Did you peak earlier in life? What trajectory are you on? As we trust, I'll close with this. As we trust in God's promises to us at our baptism and to our children, we must live into those promises. And parents, you must nurture your children through teaching and discipline and prayer. You must say to them, you're a child of the king. Now let me teach you how to act like it. And as you do, you can be confident that God will Keep your children. He will preserve them. You must continually, though, instruct them and remind them of their status and their roles and their privileges and their responsibilities and all of these things that God gave them at their baptism. Our children must learn that the Christian story and lifestyle and rituals and most importantly, the Christian Savior is theirs. See, I tell my kids... You're a Christian. You were baptized. 
You're a spirit. You were born. But daddy, I don't remember it. Well, that doesn't mean you're not a part of our family. The most important things in life you don't choose. It's okay in this. Our children must learn that in baptism, and we as adults, we must know that in our baptism, God incorporated us into the body of Christ. He inducted us into the royal priesthood. Ernie was made a priest. Every bit as much as Aaron. Every bit as much as the children of Aaron and the descendants of Aaron all down through the Old Testament. Ernie was made a priest. Jesse was made a priest at her baptism. See, this is why Martin Luther, who believed in justification by faith, this is a Protestant sermon. This is why Martin Luther said in his darkest days when he doubted the most, he said, Luther, you were baptized. No, there's been no greater champion of justification by faith. This is not a pushback against that. You must know that these things define who you are and how you are to live. And by God's grace, we will grow up never knowing a day apart from God's love for us and our love for him. And when you stray and when our children stray, we must grab one another by our baptisms and gently bring one another back to repentance. There's grace. There's grace. And there's responsibility. This is the lesson of Isaac's life. So the number one point, children share in the same relationship to God that their parents have. Number two, this relationship is a source of our growth in the faith. And number three, when we fail to grow in the faith, it will lead to tragedy. Let's pray.